This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. 205 DGS, happy transitional Wednesday. Weather-wise, tomorrow should be much, much cooler. Beautiful weekend coming up. Uh, at the bottom of the hour, we're going to talk to a Harvard history professor who knows all about uh, the Electoral College and threats to democracy. That should be really interesting. We have Chris Cuomo coming up later. Going to end the show with uh, one half of my interview, Mickey Dolans from the Monkees, which really, I thought was a really good interview. He was very, very open and an interesting guy. Uh, stairway to Kevin. All right, let's talk some money. Uh, got a couple different things here, depending on how it goes, but I wanted to start. Did you guys see the Mick Jagger story this week? Yes. So he basically, he, he's worth about $500 million, and he said... My kids don't need $500 million when I'm gone. Um, and there's talk that he's going to donate it to charity. I don't know if it means he's going to donate it all, uh, you know, maybe give oh, them something. I understood something. that differently. Yeah. I understood that their catalog was worth $500 million. Oh, no. he Yeah. The, the story that I saw was about where he's what he's going to do with his money okay. when he dies and whether he's going to leave it to his kids. And his quote was, they don't need $500 million. Um and I, it, I don't really. I'm not worried about that. He may leave them a smaller amount of it, which is still a lot of money. I'm not. This is not about really Mick Jagger, but more about inheritance and expectations and how that works. Because I, I feel like regular people, like if you're just normal, regular, middle class person in Europe, you know, you're saving money, but you're gonna spend your like if you spend your money. If I if my parents were like, we're gonna spend all our money on, while we're alive, I'm like, good, go ahead. You don't owe me anything. You raised me, you know, you gave me the things I needed. You don't have to save money for when you're dead to give to me. If you want to spend it, spend it. But if you're wealthy, is there any weirdness about not leaving money for your kids? Maybe not all of it, because I can understand that. Like, I mean, you didn't earn half a billion dollars. You don't need that to get started in life. But how does that, how do you guys weigh that? Because I, I think for normal people, there's nothing wrong with just spending the money that you have and not setting anything aside for anybody after you because you did your job. You raised them. They can take care of themselves. I can take care of myself. Uh, but what about that kind of thing where your parent, your dad's wealthy and, I mean, his kids are as old as 52 and as young as six, which is kind of an interesting range. But I won't have to worry about it. Uh, I've, I've done fine during my career, but, you know, when I think of, like, super wealthy people, I think of people with tens of millions of dollars. Right, right, right. The only way I'm going to get that is if I hit the lotto or something. Um, and if I were to do that, um, yeah, I think I would probably feel similarly. Let's say that I had $500 million, like Mick Jagger does. Uh, I think that you're more likely to screw someone up by giving them $500 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... I think like 20 is a round, nice round number. 
Uh, it's all relative to what you have, of course, but I would feel totally fine leaving both Nick and Phoebe $20 million and then setting up a trust or a charitable fund yeah, or something yeah. like that. Same way. I feel the same way. But and I, that may but be what he's talking about. But that's if I had $500 million. And mm-hmm. that may be what he's talking about. Like, yeah. he's not saying, I'm not leaving them a cent. But you do hear that from time to oh, time. Yeah, you where hear wealthy lot. people are like, well, they can earn their own way. And I feel like that's a bit much. I don't know if it's over the... I don't know why, but I feel like you're kind of like smacking your kids upside the head. Like, if you didn't raise your kids to be able to handle yeah. having that little bit of extra... Because to me, if I'm looking at it, like it seems like you're the same way. It would be... I want my kid to have the freedom to pursue what they want to do. Mm-hmm. So if they don't want to have to grind at a boring job all the time, I would like them to be able to do what they want. If I can provide that even in death, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. But I also don't want it to be like, here, here's half a billion dollars either. I understand that. I mean, any any large amount of money, and, and then $20 million definitely qualifies as that. Oh, yeah. Is, I can I think, be dangerous to to kids or even I might even say like people who didn't work for it. You know what I mean? Remember when affluenza was the big term mm-hmm. a handful of years ago cuz that guy like ran over that kid like ran over a bunch of people and mm-hmm. they claimed, "Well, he has affluenza cuz yeah. he he's never learned what a consequence is cuz he's simply too rich." I think that hmm, I don't know if I necessarily agree with like I'm not leaving my kids a red cent, but I do also I think there I think there maybe is some merit to that, right? I yeah, I would. I think. I think there's that. The middle ground is the way it was where, what we're talking about, right? I, I think. But that, even twenty million, I think, is is an absurdly I, higher lo- he, amount of money. He, even if it's like three million or two million, if you're talking about, I don't know. I guess my question is, if you're somebody's kid and they're worth that, and they're like, "Yep, yeah, I don't trust you with this," that would be a pretty big blow. Yeah, wouldn't it? But for whatever reason, if that's it was what I mean, just, we think that it's bad for you. Because uh, I've heard a lot of celebrities flex like that. You're not rich. I'm rich. Like Seinfeld says all the time, Kevin Hart. Uh, <laughs> I'd be pissed if I were the kids and, and you left me nothing. Because I feel like that's more. Yes, it's, it's it's a bit of a smack in the face because you raised me. And if you don't raise me well enough to handle this. Or even if it was just this is my money, you don't get it. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is worse to me. Um, the other money thing I had. Did you guys see this? Michael Jordan. Became mm-hmm. the first athlete ever in the Forbes 400. I did. I, did you also see that Donald Trump fell out? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He is estimated to be worth $2.6 billion, which is $300 million away from being on the Forbes 500. There's been a lot of reports by his own people that he was obsessed with that. And that uh, now, with what's going on, that number could be uh, estimated even farther down because depending on what happens depending with the ruling. on what happens with the ruling. Yes. I said to the guys at lunch today, I felt kind of dumb. I really thought Donald Trump would show up to the very first day of the trial, which good for you. You're you're showing that hey, I'm here and I'm into it, but it's going to be a 3-month trial, so I'm not going to be here every day cuz I'm Donald Trump. But he's been there every day and then it just hit me while we're eating lunch. Oh, it's because they're coming after his money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like he could he could lose a quarter billion dollars or more yeah. or lose control of his business empire. So that's why I guess that's why he's there every day. Isn't it fascinating, like the the you know, moving to from that to the Michael Jordan thing, though? That basically that's shoes. Oh sure, right? I mean, like he made a lot of money as a player. He he got he made hundreds of millions as a player, but that's not three billion. No, he did just sell a majority interest in the in the Charlotte Hornets, and he got a lot of that money from that. But even that probably wasn't his his portion of it. Probably wasn't a billion. So, he, I mean, you're still talking about, he's still 
makes as much, I think, on Air Jordans as any current basketball player makes on their shoes. I think the concept of having enough money that you really can't reasonably spend it, whether it's $3 billion or $251 billion, which is what Elon Musk has, mm-hmm. who Forbes says is the richest man on earth. Uh, I can't imagine spending a billion. And I'm not saying that like, oh, good old Dave, he's a South Rock Santa Dave. No, I, I, I can't. Because you go out and you, and you and you buy a twenty-five million dollar mansion, <laughs> yeah, you, you still, put a you still have nine hundred seventy-five million yes. left. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. At a certain point, isn't the market just shrinking? As far as yeah. like, there's nothing left for me to buy at this point. I, I, I will never forget when, uh, within a couple three years of Seinfeld ending and and him becoming like a half billionaire. And someone interviewed him, would have been probably before I even had the show, and he, they said, what's it like to have $400 million? And he said, it really shows you, no, he said, it, it really makes you appreciate cheeseburgers and blue jeans. He said, it really makes you appreciate that, oh, this cheeseburger is making me just as happy as a $500 truffle meal. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, he went out and bought a million cars and stuff like that. But, <laughs> but he, yeah, it's it just the, those numbers are stunning. And to think that, I mean, the Tiger Woods might be on this list somewhere down the road, right? Because not only from his career earnings, but he's one of the most heavily endorsed athletes of all time. And he can probably continue to make money via endorsements until he, I mean, Jack Nicholas made him until he was, until he passed away. And Tiger's a bigger phenomenon than that. Is, I think it's interesting that we're kind of entering a phase where celebrity is getting you onto the Forbes 400, mm-hmm. right? Not just industry, not just being real estate or I wonder investment point, banker or whatever. And I'm sure it, it obviously it's, it's different for every individual, but I wonder at what point you stop the you know what measuring contest. <laughs> like mm-hmm. if you only have three billion, that's really not that much for billionaires, right? For mm-hmm. the super rich. But if I had three billion and I went to a party of billionaires where the average was a hundred billion, <laughs> I wouldn't care. No, I'm I'm happy being the skinniest kid at fact. Where, where's your line, like as far as that kind of thing goes? Where you're like, you like you you're like I don't have to try to add more. I'm not trying to keep up the Joneses. To I'm, me, it's just a it's not a number. It's if I don't ever have to think about any bills, then I'm good. Yeah, the only um, I know myself pretty well. If, if I had a lot of money, I would probably spend it traveling. I don't know that I would ever go out and buy a five hundred thousand dollar vehicle. That's just not me, you know. Like uh, I have, friends, I would do that. Have, by the way, I have friends that live in giant mansions. <laughs> I wouldn't want to live where they live. No, it, it's too big. It's too cold. It's too austere. It's not cozy. On a castle. So I know I have a friend who lives in a castle. Uh, Can we go over? And I wouldn't want it. Yeah. Which makes me really happy. Yeah. Now, if I win the lottery tonight, I will buy stupid stuff. Yeah. But I don't yearn for that lifestyle. I really, truly don't. Did you? I I, I brought some. I do. We have the audio up there. If it's a, it's a, I think it says Rollins or it's Rogan or something like that. Or, or it's about money. money. Yeah. Okay, so this was interesting. So it's along these lines, and I, I'll just tie it in here because it's good. So the musician Henry Rollins mm-hmm. was on the Joe Rogan podcast and talking about this kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? Now, Henry Rollins is not Mick Jagger level rich, 
But he's pretty wealthy. He's had a successful career acting. He's had a successful career with music. And he was on talking a bit about why he still flies coach. I spend money on records, plane tickets, and the occasional lens for a camera. You know, I drive a Mazda 6. What? Yeah. Do you do that on purpose? I live in L.A., man. Do you, do you fly economy? You one of those... Yeah, but Son I, have, of a bitch. I, I have over a million miles on United, and I so you I, do. I'm probably uh, trying to upgrade you. Like, no, 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 no. Oh no, no, I'll take no. the aisle seat. No, I, I give me the middle. I save them up for when I go on tour. Like last year, I was in Australia twice, and so I, that's where I use the miles because mm -hmm. I will not justify spending two thousand dollars for more leg room for seven hours because you can buy like a truckload of records of that money. Right, but you already have that $2,000 in the bank. It's I can't, not like I, you need that $2,000. I, I was really broke ass in a band for many years, and the, all the money I made, it came with a lot of sweat and a lot of pain, and I, I must respect it. Mm. And, to, and I'm not saying to f put yourself in business classes being disrespectful to money. What I'm saying is I can't justify it. I simply cannot go. That was worth it. I can't do it. That's interesting. Isn't that fascinating? Like, yeah. you have that attitude, which sounds like kind of what we're all talking about. And then you've got the attitude where there's never enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe I'm just poor, but whenever I hear <laughs> rich people talking about stuff like that, it just, it irks me for some reason. Like, oh, yeah, you're so relatable because you're flying coach. Like, you're still a rich guy. You're still... <laughs> He's spending it on records instead. Right, exactly. And that, I don't know, just the whole, like, no, I'm just like you. I save my pennies, too. Like, no, you're not. I mean, I get what you're saying, but after a certain point, hearing wealthy people talk about their money all the time, yeah. it's just like, eh, I also gross. will never not roll my eyes when it's like... Like you said about Seinfeld, like you really, I, I just love cheeseburgers and blue jeans. And it's like, yeah, because now you're looking at cheeseburgers and blue jeans, not as all I can afford is cheeseburgers and blue jeans. Right. You're looking at it as this like it's quaint, quaint yeah. as this cute novelty. Like, you know, what's really great. A McDonald's hamburger. It's like, yeah, we know that's what we eat. <laughs> 222 DGS. Weird day out there. Weird day in here. That 120 thing threw me. <laughs> Your nanoparticles have been yeah. activated, Dave. That's why you feel weird. Um, interesting stuff going on in the world of religion across the board. Uh, many, many churches are now having AI sermons. So you can now have an AI preacher. And people are doing it non-ironically, not like this is going to be funny or cool. They're, they're doing it. So they're having AI create the sermon, present the sermon, and that's their minister. Uh, the... Chief Orthodox rabbi in Israel just said that liberal Jews are less intelligent and did a whole takedown. So that's like a big deal going on uh, in, in Israel right now. And then the Pope had some interesting comments. Uh, the Pope just recently said that uh, the irresponsible Western way of life is fueling a climate change. And this one is a little more in the weeds, but if it interests you, you can Google it and you can read it for yourself. Uh, because it's kind of vague, but he put out a statement saying that he's okay with priests blessing gay couples so long as they know that we're not saying that this is the same as man-woman marriage. So basically he is softening toward the gay community and saying that, look, I know that there are lots of priests out there who do it anyway, who will bless a What's the word? Civil union. Yeah, something like that. Uh, 
And he basically said, I'm okay with that. I'm going to leave it to the pastors to decide to do it in the right way, which is getting a lot of pushback from conservative Catholics, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, one has to want, I mean, I'm not Catholic, but you wonder what is the point of a blessing if it's if it's got the caveat on it? Like, now this isn't the same thing as a real blessing, but we'll give you this little mini blessing. Yeah, my understanding was that it is so that um, gay, LGBT, Catholics who are together feel wanted and appreciated and loved and not rejected. Uh, so we, I as the priest will give you God's blessing. We love you, but it's not the same, like Rach said. As, yeah, there's still a rejection. It's not a sacrament. There. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. But I guess it's better than before when it was. Don't let the door hit you in the butt. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with numbers diminishing, you can't really afford to lose people for any reason at this point. I find it fascinating. And again, I was raised Catholic, so this is something I know better than other religious arguments. I've always found it fascinating that there are people that will disagree with the Pope. More and more. I mean, you, the it's Pope, almost become the, like disagreeing with a president. I mean, like, no, yeah. but it's even worse because the whole idea is that the Pope is God's voice on earth. That's it's not the same as somebody that's it's not your president. It's not a politician. This is supposed to be the God's representative on earth. And there are people, not just not just people that are in the that are in the congregation, but bishops and priests that are like, nope, the Pope is wrong. I'm like, but the structure says that the Pope is God's vicar on earth. He's supposed to be divinely chosen. That that the idea is that the cardinals all get together and they pray and that God helps them make the choice. So if that was God's will for for this Pope, Francis, to be the Pope, who are you to disagree? I've never understood that as, a, again, as a person that went to Catholic schools my whole life, as someone that was raised Catholic, I, I don't understand how you can say, I am a part of this, this is the structure, and the Pope is my leader, but he's wrong. Yeah, I'm a non-Catholic agnostic, but I've, I've studied it a bit, and it's so, because it's so interesting to me, and as I understand it, the infallibility comes in yeah. in very narrow. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, hey, this is a, then there's a name for it. All the Catholics yeah. are saying right now, you know, screaming it in their car. Uh, but when the Pope says this, this is this, that's infallible. When yeah. he speaks from the chair. Right, right. But when he's just being the Pope. Correct. Then, of course, you give him respect. And, of course, he's God's man on earth, but he's not infallible. Right. And I'm, it's just an odd thing. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, because you're right, they they got rid of, or not got rid of, but they've clarified the idea of when you are supposedly infallible and when you're not. And I think we've all kind of accepted. I know even in you know before I decided I wasn't going to play the game anymore, that people then weren't like, oh yeah, the Pope is completely infallible. That nobody believed that, and that was 20, 30 years ago. Um, it, but again, that's a person that you believe is is inspired by God to lead the church. And you're just going to be like, nope, you're wrong. My interpretation of what you're in charge of is better than yours. Mm-hmm. Which is, again, not saying you're wrong. I'm not in the club anymore. It's not my decision. i just saying it's odd. Welcome back, guys. DGS and KMOX. My next guest is Alex Kesar. He's a professor of history and social policy at Harvard University John F. Kennedy School of Government. His book, The Right to Vote, The Contested History of Democracy in the United States, finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and he joins us now. Uh, Dr. Kesar, very nice to meet you. Thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. 
So I have a weird first question for you uh, outside of your specific work. Uh, So a million years ago, uh, I went to Washington University Law School, the Harvard of the Midwest. Uh, I never once thought about being a professor, but I was I could sniff the academia like I could. I spent time with the professors just kind of in general. Can you give me and my audience a flavor of what it's like to be an academic in 2023, especially at an institution like Harvard? (laughs) <laughs> well, it's very hard to it's very hard to generalize in part because an institution like Harvard and many universities have many different parts, and the and the the the, the cultures vary. Whether you're in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, the law school, or I'm in the Kennedy School, which is the School of Government and Public Policy, and here I'd say, um, you know, on the one hand, uh, our students are engaged, and people are doing a lot of research and very engaged, but there is um, there's a clearly detectable worry about the state of democracy in the United States and elsewhere. And that that's that's really all around the atmospherics of the place. Yeah, very. I, I just find the whole thing fascinating. Um, OK, so let's start, quote unquote, simple. The other day we were talking about the Electoral College and I was saying, look, I, I could give you a solid 60 seconds on it, but then I'm going to be tapped out. Uh, and we're talking about, okay, why was it you know, put into the, to play? Has it run its course? Who does it favor? Does that flip-flop back and forth? So if you could, just kind of give us a little 101, and we'll go from there. Sure. And I should mention here, as a, in the point of self-advertising, that I've also written a book that was published a couple of years ago called Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? Perfect. Uh, it's available to all of your listeners. Um, uh, look, the Electoral College was a compromised constitutional convention um, with no particular conviction on the part of the framers and considerable uncertainty about how it would work. They did not know, they had no model for how to elect a chief executive. Um, what, they, what they drafted was something which worked so badly that they had to revise it in 10 years. Hmm. Um, and many of the framers um, ended up thinking that it, it, the, it was still very poorly designed. So um, it, it begins um, as a way of really trying to um, avoid having Congress choose the president. The default position at the outset was that Congress should choose the president. And they kept coming back to that idea and deciding it was a bad idea, which from the vantage point of this week um, (laughs) in the United States, I think we might think they were quite right to reject that. But they thought there had to be separation of powers. Um, And, you know, the the key features of the Electoral College um, is the allocation of electors to the state, which gives some advantage to small states. Um, And the state run the election so that what we have is not really a national election, but an assembly of about 50 uh, state of The other interesting, one other interesting thing, just to mention one feature of this, is that one of the distinctive features and, uh, and one that skews our politics is the, is, is the decisions by to give all of their electoral votes to whoever wins the popular vote. That is not in the Constitution. And that was not really the intent of the framers. Um, but that emerged over 30 or 40 years as the default position, um, or as 
the claimed position of most states as parties in those states tried to maximize their partisan advantage. Wheels? Yeah, that, that was the part that I was going to get into, um, is the necessity of it now and how it's applied. And what would it take? I mean, obviously, this is something that has, has been a part of our elections process for a long time. I mean, how? I guess it's imp- almost impossible to change at this point, or is it possible? And I mean, we know that amending the Constitution and doing anything of that magnitude is seems impossible in the modern political time. Well, the, the, you know, I, I think only solid way to change it uh, would be through a constitutional. And for example, with state could eliminate take all, but. Hey, Doc, Doc, we're having trouble with your connection. Is there possibly a different place in the room where can we call you back or something? Maybe you're cutting out about every third word. Uh, You want to call me on on a different line? Sure. I will hang up, and Andrew will, will call you right back. There you go. Yeah, that's. Fa- I mean, it's a fascinating topic to me. Yeah, I-, I mean, like this happens. It happens all the time, and you know, it's like you don't want to interrupt the interview, but there comes a point when it's like, well, this is this is interesting. Yeah. This is interesting. I, I know. On. Why? Why are we going to try to suffer through this? So yeah, it, I I think the the origin of it is really interesting in that it was a compromise, yeah. right? I mean, they wanted to keep the separation of powers in place. There is also the element, too, I think at the time, a regular popular election would be a lot more difficult to just execute and make sure that it was the way that you would want it to be accurate and all of that. Right. We have Dr. Kesar back. Uh, Dr. Kesar, if you remember where you were, please continue. Uh, Go right ahead. Uh, I do. In fact, I do. Uncharacteristically, I do remember where I was, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which which is I was saying that. States could get rid of winner-take-all on their own. I mean, and two states have, Maine and Nebraska have. Um, But it's very unlikely that that will happen because it would mean giving up an advantage uh, that each each, uh, sort of dominant party uh, has. So you'd have to do it by constitutional amendment. And certainly, uh, you know, I'm not uh, Pollyannish about this. Getting a constitutional amendment passed uh, would be extremely difficult. But, I, but you know, I don't want to put it in the category of impossible. I mean, there were a, a reminder, and now this may seem like truly ancient history to some of your younger listeners, but in 1969, 1970, we came within a whisker of getting rid of the Electoral College and, and, and replacing it with a national popular vote. A constitutional amendment passed the House by an 82% vote, had a significant majority in the Senate, but it was killed by a southern filibuster. Um, and, but we came very, very close at that point, and it was bipartisan. So I don't think it's absolutely out of the question, but it's certainly um, – things do not look auspicious yeah. today for bipartisan yeah. uh, agreement, and, and you need supermajorities to amend the Constitution. Guys, if you're just joining me, we're talking to Professor Kesar from Harvard University, uh, specifically about the Electoral College, but also just threats to, to democracy. So um, my generations, where were you when JFK was shot, I think is, is 9-11 and January 6th. Uh, I'm curious what your experience was like having spent all these decades studying and writing and publishing about the threats to democracy and then watching January 6th unfold, and especially like the fake elector schemes and such that have so much to do with your work. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it was quite astonishing. I mean, in, 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 in fact, I was actually, you know, on the air uh, with, with doing a radio interview um, as, as the January 6th events unfolded. Wow. Um, and, you know, and people on the other end of the line were trying to, you know, and I was set up to do interviews all day because I know a lot about how it works and how it was supposed to work. It was pretty astonishing. Um, and then... You know, and then I actually, I actually taught a course for two years about what it was um, that that happened. And you know, I think that what it was on the one hand, it was astonishing. I can't say that I anticipated that. I can't say that I thought that those events um, would happen. But I was well aware of uh, because of the research and writing I've been doing of all of the kinks and glitches in the apparatus of the electoral college about. You know, how the states cast votes, who can challenge the votes, what happens if you end up with one person getting less than a majority. The, one of the problems, in addition to the features that I mentioned about the Electoral College, one of the problems is that the apparatus is very elongated and has a lot of points in it where it could be manipulated, such as, you know, deciding who, who which electors uh, states have chosen or are electors free to cast their votes for whomever they want, uh, you know, or are they bound? The answer is in some states they're bound, elsewhere not. So the the arena for manipulation is there. There's, it is The functioning of the institution has relied on a kind of trust and goodwill which apparently we can no longer take it, uh, take for granted. That's a good point. Uh, Professor, as a scholar and a citizen, were you pleased with the way the government responded on January 6th and the days afterwards? No, I can't say I was pleased. Well, when you talk about the days afterwards, really, there was there was, you know, there was some there was I mean, on the one hand, uh, Joe Biden did get inaugurated as president, um, although his predecessor refused to attend the inauguration. What was somewhat disheartening to me um, was that in those first days, um, in the first week after January 6th, um, there were many people on the Republican side who were sharply critical of what had happened. I mean, including Kevin McCarthy, um, you know, and Mitch McConnell. Uh, And there were a lot of, and, you know, and and even South Carolina Senator. Um, But uh, then in the next couple of weeks, they backed off those criticisms. Uh, So that, that was disheartening because, um, the criticisms were, you know, in the governmental reaction and then the rea- and then the failure to convict on impeachment were a way of possibly saying there are lines here. There are places you cannot go. There are rules. Um, and I think that what happened in the wake of in the in the several weeks afterwards was a reluctance on the part of the president's uh, President Trump's own party to make that assertion that there are rules, there are lines you cannot cross. And I think that that ended up weakening the institutions. Um, we're talking to uh, Professor Kesar from Harvard University. Uh, final question. I would be a terrible talk show host if I didn't ask you about the uh, the happenings of last night, the ousting of Kevin McCarthy. Uh, once again, did that surprise you? How does it hit you as a scholar? Um you know, on the one hand, it's surprising that a party is not able to 
figure out its internal conflicts in a way that still permits it to govern. But um, but this has been in the works, it seems to me, for a long time. I mean, Kevin McCarthy is not the first Republican speaker in the last 25 years to run into serious difficulty. Right. I mean, John Boehner and Paul Ryan both stepped down um, right. and um, and and before that, Dennis Haster, I guess he finished his term. But uh, but Gingrich was forced to step down as well. So there's a there's a level of conflict and distrust within the Republican conference um, that's been longstanding. And then. In this instance, uh, McCarthy only became speaker by handing them the guns with which they could shoot him, and they did. So very true. Yeah. So many great points. Uh, we'd love to have you back on again. Uh, the the, uh, the doctor's books are The Right to Vote, The Contested History of Democracy in the United States, and Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College, which was published in 2020. Uh, Doc, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. It was very interesting. Sure, and I'm happy to come back on whenever you'd like. 250 TGS. I think the most interesting thing that uh, Dr. Kasar from Harvard just said, and you don't have to be a Harvard professor to think this, um, it's pretty straightforward and simple, but the way he said it really impacted me, and the other guys, we all looked at each other when he said it, is that vis-a-vis January 6th, that there's a certain amount of goodwill that's baked into the Constitution and the way we do business as a country. There's a certain assumed you're not going to be a gigantic ass and try to overthrow the government, uh, not just January 6th, but in other ways that there's an assumption that you're not going to use your Senate seat to enrich yourself with gold bars and and expensive cars and such. Uh and that's so fascinating. Earlier in the show when I was talking about watching Kevin McCarthy last night and thinking to myself, like, maybe you're more of an institutionalist as you think. That really kind of scratched that itch I've had in my brain mm-hmm. is what I miss. And I know that there's – I've always thought it's kind of ham-fisted with like, whoa, my my, uh, my br- brilliant colleague from Kentucky. You know, that kind of stuff is a little foghorn leghorn for me. But I do believe that – Holding yourself to a higher standard of intelligence and decorum and respect and working within the institutions and within the parliamentary procedures or whatever, as opposed to just going off half cocked, that is much more uh, attractive to me than I ever thought it was. Because I've always thought of myself as more of a rebel. You know, like, oh, look at me. I don't own a suit. I got tattoos and blah, 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 blah. And I do comedy for a living. I mean, I'm a musician. But when it comes to government, I'm not much of a rebel. You know, I I don't want to be a lemming. I don't want to be a sheep. But I also don't like uh, the the Congress being ran like a little rascals episode. Well, it's not fun if everybody's a rebel. At that point, you're just living in chaos. And that's what it feels like we're getting to now is more and more rebels are getting into these offices and they're going, oh, I can exploit this weakness. I can. Here's an opportunity I can take. They're not falling into that trust and that goodwill that we talked about. They're exploiting those things but for I their own personal say, gain. Everyone thinks they're doing the right thing. I, I, guarantee, I don't know. I mean, right, I, but this is why the structure is so important. 
Yes. Because then things don't bend and sway or even break because some people think they're more right than others, yeah. regardless of the ideology. True. Is, the it whole- po- is it possible that what you were talking about, that like kind of institutionalism, that belief in that sort of assumed goodwill is causing you to overlook the fact that, like Rachel kind of alluded to, maybe they're not doing what they think is right? Maybe they yeah. are intentionally. Maybe I give too much. Yeah, credit. like I don't Gaming know that system. Matt Gates is going home and like another great day of work and building I'm towards a, a better America. Like I don't think he has. Yeah, those that's thoughts. a good point. I think he's out for Matt Gates. He's like, I yeah. can fundraise on this. I which think, is, I think they are very much looking at. Oh my God, look at this! Like, if I just exploit this, I can get ahead. I can get more money. I can get more power. And like with Donald Trump in January sixth, I'm sure there was a part of him that you know, wanted to believe that he won the election, but he had hundreds of people or, you know, dozens of people close to him saying like, you know, this is not the way we should be doing things. And evidence just kept mounting. He couldn't find any evidence to prove that he won. I, I mean, I, it's hard for me to be like, but he thought he was doing yeah. the right thing at the end of the day. I don't think so. I think yeah. he One thing that had bothered an agenda me that was for himself. The most about what happened last night is when the Speaker Pro Tem said, okay, we're adjourned for a week. Just playground rules. You know, if you and your spouse have a big fight, I know it's common like, hey, I'm going to sleep on the couch or we're going to take a, a night off or something. But you don't have the luxury of let's take a week off. You got to work your stuff out and families in general and if I had a hard day here on the job and I went to Steve Moore and said, I'll see you in a week, he wouldn't fire me, but he wouldn't be happy with me. My point is just the obvious. Like, we don't get to do that. Well, they're the most privileged people on the planet. You want to talk about billionaires leaving their kids money or whatever. I mean, at least they did. I mean, whatever. They're two separate things. But these are the most privileged people out there. They get to make their own rules and set their own salary and look down on all of us. Everything is in flux. It's like 40-something days until the shutdown again. I don't think we have a day. I don't think we have a day. I also, uh, I'm not a giant Nancy Pelosi fan or anything, but I also thought it was kind of a a D move to uh, kick her out of her office as Speaker Emerita, whatever that is, uh, while she's attending the funeral of Dan Feinstein, just on a human level, forget Democrat, forget Republican, forget whatever. That just seemed like the very first thing he did was say, "You need you have twenty four hours to get out of your office." Like, really? That's the yeah, most important thing going on right a now. A weird priority to have, yeah. given everything. Yeah. My, the only priorities that matter, though, are scoring points with zingers and exacting personal revenge. And and by the way, I'd feel exactly the same way if Hakeem Jeffries yeah. kicked Kevin McCarthy out. Yeah, hundred percent. Be like, dude, come on, hundred percent. And what the whole? This is what drive. This is the the, the source of frustration is the lack of consistency with any with how we do and enforce anything when it comes to these things. Right? I mean, Doctor Kasar was talking about how the the one problem with trying to change or get rid of the electoral colleges. Well, some of the smaller states like the power that it gives them. I don't care. We shouldn't be allowing people to protect power. You know, if you're voting for president of the United States in California, if you vote Republican, your vote doesn't matter because it's going to go for the Democrat. That's a good point. And every one of those electoral votes is going to go to that Democrat. And no matter what state you're in, blue or red, if you vote against the majority in there, your vote doesn't count. And that's the argument against the Electoral College. Because if they're going all of their electoral votes for one candidate, 
That means your vote did not have anything to do with who was chosen. That's why it should be gone. It's interesting. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.